Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, The Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Day 105, Tuesday, August 28th, 2001. One smiley face, make a wish day. Email condensed. Subject, Adrian ranting again, winky face. Date, August 28, 2001, to Dave Navarro. Today was honestly one of the best days of my life. I cannot describe in words how incredible of a person you are. I have never before met someone who was so wise, down-to-earth, intelligent, talented, and humorous. Throughout most of my childhood, you were that one string of hope that held me together after years of abuse from my mother. I do feel strange telling you that. To me, you are a dear friend. It's sort of like walking up to a stranger and saying the same thing, but then again, we are no longer strangers to each other. When you said that we don't have to go through contacts to hang out or talk, were you serious? That kind of threw me into shock, and again, in a good way. Smiley face. You are a truly beautiful person. Your kind is rare in this world. You are a true gem worth being cherished. Thank you for giving me hope. Until we meet again, Adrian. P.S. Sorry if I talked your ear off today or got in the way of things that you needed to get done. One of the best days of Adrian's life begins with a routine echocardiogram at Children's Hospital. It is her last test here, her last appointment. We arrive early, eager to complete the task so we can go home and get ready for her big day. Adrian is already upset about having less than an hour to get dressed and do her makeup. I pay little attention to her heart thumping on the screen, but the technician notes her pulse rate is high. Oh, that, says Adrian. I'm seeing Dave today. He knows who I am. She smiles. The technician shrugs, which makes me chuckle. Adrian is too excited to notice he has no idea who Dave is. Despite the time crunch, Adrian wants to go upstairs and say goodbye to the nurses on the Hemoc ward. Feeling weak and wanting to save all of her strength for later today, she requests a wheelchair. I find one, and as we enter the giraffe elevators, I realize... I will miss them. I never found out why giraffes, tigers, and peacocks were chosen for the elevator as themes. When the elevator doors open at the fourth floor, the artistic work assaults my eyes. I won't miss it or the overabundance of primary colors that attempts to hide the suffering here. I will, however, miss certain people. We run into Helen, one of our favorite nurses. I taught her how to tie her ballet shoes. 
She told us what others said about our family. Her ditzy demeanor made us laugh while her confidence and caring impressed us. When Adrian tells her today is our last day, Helen nods. I told her weeks ago about our desire to transfer to UCLA. She is not surprised, only saddened by the news. She leans over and hugs Adrian, who is chattering away about meeting Dave. Goodbye and good luck, Helen says. I hug her too. We look for Ronnie, whom we haven't seen in a while, but who got us through those first two weeks of this madness with her kindness and her advice. Ronnie, with her frog design scrub tops and perky manner, reminds me of the Reese Witherspoon character, only taller, from the legally blonde trailers that keep running on television. Attractive, smart, and funny, Ronnie is the total package. We know more about Ronnie's personal life than we do about some of our own so-called friends. She's married to a fireman, her sister Brittany survived cancer, and she wants babies in a few years. Ronnie isn't working today. Then there's Velma, who still talks about the time she kidnapped a wide-awake Adrian in the middle of the night, while John and I slept on the window seat barely big enough for a small child, much less two grown adults. After taking pictures with Adrian's Polaroid camera, which produces many adhesive prints, the nurses signed them. Velma wrote, Thank you for letting me take care of you. Keep in touch. Fight hard. Similar to USC's motto, fight on. Velma is off today, too. We say goodbye to a few more familiar faces, nurses whose names we can't remember. We continue waving until the elevator doors shut. As the car drops down four floors to the lobby, I feel a sense of relief. Here on the seventh floor, the surgical ward, we found out Adrian had cancer. Here, we heard no change more than once. Here, I prayed in a chapel to a God who doesn't exist, couldn't help, or didn't listen. I pushed the wheelchair faster. The doors open. We zit through the Mary Poppins area with its no cell phone sign and the smiley face on the wall. I wheel Adrian past the giant plastic palm trees and the huge fish tank named Guppy Wood and wonder if the children playing on the oversized cubes are siblings of sick patients. We go around the security desk, home of the sticky colored passes. I look at the huge panel on our right where Children's Hospital acknowledges its special friends. I glance at the hundreds of names etched in frosted glass. We exit and I see the dingy smoking area. I remember the time I caught a surgeon smoking on the roof of the parking lot. Then I spot the sign that greeted me when we first started this journey, McDonald's open during construction. I pointed out to Adrian, you know something kiddo, I will be okay if I never eat another McDonald's french fry again. Well, I still like their McFlurries, she says, when I'm hungry. Adrian has already decided to wear her blue dress today, the same one she wore for the benefit. Last night, she painted her fingernails and toenails the exact same shade of royal blue as well as drew intricate designs on her hands with a black Sharpie marker. From far away, she appears to have tattoos. She likes it when people make that mistake. After the foundation disaster on our way to the ballet last month, she decides to wear none at all this morning. Instead, she applies blush to her cheeks to give her otherwise pale face some color. 
She rubs glitter on her bald head and even brushes her teeth without being pestered. She slips on a necklace, a pendant with glitter in it, and asks how she looks. I tell a white lie. You look perfect, sweetie. Just beautiful. She looks stunning, except for her shoulder blades jutting out of her back, showing how thin she has gotten. Then there are the purple-red circles behind her eyelids, revealing a new kind of fatigue. And her face is so white, except for the cheekbones, where blush attempts to cover the truth. Two blood transfusions, and she has no color in her face. I can't remember a time when I was darker than Adrian, but now I am. Look, sissy, there it is. Adrian points to the black limousine parked in our driveway. I push my worries aside when I see Adrian smile. Her enthusiasm is contagious. John, they're here. I yell, even though he hates it when I shout in the house. He walks out wearing a long-sleeved white crew shirt and blue jeans. I'm wearing a black rayon button-up shirt and matching slacks. John looks ready to drink beer with his buddies while I am prepared to teach school. Adrian is the only one dressed appropriately for such a special day. She looks like a princess who is attending her first formal ball. I hope we don't embarrass her in front of Dave. She'll never forgive us. I don't know if I feel better or worse when I see our wish coordinator, Becca, dressed even more casually than us. She's wearing turquoise cropped pants and a cotton top with an intricate design along with high-heeled sandals. Becca reminds me of your typical Southern California woman. She keeps her body in good shape. Her skin has seen too much sun. She wears clothes that are not age appropriate, yet she always manages to look good. I note her necklace matches her pants. I used to hate women like her, women with too much money and too few worries, but Becca has been kind to us and she helped make this day possible, even if Adrian already knew Dave. After Becca takes pictures of us, we begin our day. The air conditioning is a welcome relief from the dry heat outside. Adrian explores the interior of the limo. She accepts a Coke when Becca offers her one, but she doesn't finish it. Instead, she talks about where we're going for lunch because she is the only person who knows anything about the place. Adrian loves watching the Food Network. Iron Chef is one of her favorite shows, and she saw a review of the restaurant called The Standard. Today, we are eating lunch there, The Standard on Sunset. You're going to love it, she tells us. Knowing her, I have no doubt. The first thing I notice about our destination is the sign is upside down. A signal the standard is anything but standard, which turns out to be the hotel's logo. When we walk through the sliding glass doors, we immediately see two spherical, translucent chairs with white cushions hanging from the ceiling. Adrian squeals and plops into one saying, aren't these cool? I agree and sit in the other one, which is comfortable. We twirl around for a few minutes while Becca finds out whom we're supposed to be for lunch. John walks through the lobby and says, hey kiddo, check this out. John points at a full-length vitrine behind the registration desk where a lifelike female dummy lies nude with one arm 
draped across her breast and her knee crossed over her body so nothing is revealed. She's bald, just like me, says Adrian. But she's not real, is she? No, she can't be. She looks... Gosh, I'm not sure. Too perfect. And who could lie still that long? All three of us laugh as we stand there on the white terrazzo. Any other day, I would feel hopelessly out of place, but not today. We fit in among the potted cacti that line one wall and the floor to ceiling white shag carpeting that lines the opposite wall, where brown suede chaises provide the perfect spot for people watching. The whole place with its light versus dark interior and plush versus stark vibe reminds me of the battle we've been fighting for the last 105 days. Good versus evil, change versus no change. We walk into the standards 24 seven coffee shop. Check it out guys, says Adrian. She points to two clocks labeled here and there. Neither one is on the correct time. I take a picture of this phenomenon. I don't know why I expected a fancier place. I should have known Adrian would be attracted to something funky, smart. Between the blue ceiling and the blue Formica tabletops, I feel like I've been transported back to the 1950s living among Smurfs. Adrian loves it though, especially when she realizes she can see Sunset Boulevard from our booth. With such retro hip decor and a prime location, I expect outrageous prices. Not that we're paying for lunch, but I am surprised when the average price for a sandwich or salad is about $12. Unfortunately, Adrian and I can't find anything on the menu we want to eat. Her stomach can barely tolerate food these days. And as for me, I'm too picky, as John likes to remind me. After bringing out odd sized glasses and pouring smart water into them, I explain the situation to our waiter who offers to bring out the chef, Mark Irwind. I don't want to cause any trouble, but he insists it's no problem. One other thing I ask, can you tell me how many ounces of liquid that glass holds? I'm guessing seven. He gives me a puzzled look, but says, sure. I need to know how much water she drinks every day. It's important. He nods and goes to retrieve the chef. Chef Irwin, who insists we call him Mark, asks Adrian what she likes. Well, I love pasta, especially tortellini, but I hate spaghetti. Hmm. Well, I have some fettuccine. Would that do? Sure. Adrian shrugs her shoulders. I can tell she's not hungry. What kind of sauce? I love Alfredo's sauce, but I don't know if that would taste good right now. How about I mix up an olive oil based sauce with some shrimp? Do you like shrimp? I love shrimp. Adrian will eat most of the shrimp and pick at the pasta. Do you mind adding some vegetables, I ask? Adrian frowns. For me, we'll split the meal. It sounds wonderful. Of course, says Mark, acting as if we're royalty. He leaves as our waiter returns, confirming the glass holds exactly seven ounces of fluid. How did you know that, he asks. A good guess, I reply, feeling a weird mix of pride and sadness that seven was the right answer.
how can I explain to him eyeballing a glass and knowing its precise volume capacity is one of the many rare talents you develop when your child has cancer. After lunch, a young African-American woman wearing sleek black slacks and a pink spaghetti strap top that hugs her upper body offers to give us a tour of the standard hotel. Jeanette begins by telling us the futuristic seats we encountered upon our arrival are ear arneo bubble chairs. I nod and smile as though I know who this ear person is. I guess he or she is a trendy designer who is known for weird but comfortable chairs. We cross the lobby and enter the Cactus Lounge, which displays a large photo mural of California's Joshua Tree National Monument. Through this lounge lies the pool surrounded by an electric blue AstroTurf deck. Adrian loves the pool deck, telling Jeanette blue is her favorite color as she spins around to show off her dress. Even the ping pong table is a shade of blue, lighter and brighter than the deck, although that doesn't seem possible. The pool almost seems out of place, the chlorine affecting the natural color of the water, giving it that familiar blue-green tint, the exact color of Adrian's hair before chemo. I glance at Adrian's head and say we should go back inside. She cannot be in the sun too long. Before showing us an actual room, Jeanette takes us into the lounge, a cocktail bar closed during the day, but a hot spot among the in-crowd at night, even though it's been open only three months. With a maximum capacity of 115 people, the lounge is intimate yet spacious. Adrian comments how cool it is to be in a bar at her age, and we all laugh. Jeanette runs down a list of celebrities who frequent the bar, including musicians. And Dave Navarro had a surprise birthday party thrown for him here. Adrian swoons. What? No way. I'm going to see him later. He's the other part of my wish. Well, he often eats at the coffee shop, too, Jeanette replies. Really? How cool! While Adrian relishes the fact she and Dave like the same place, goosebumps crawl along the back of my neck. Another weird coincidence, although not as odd as some of the others. Nevertheless, what are the chances of Adrian picking the one place where Dave had his birthday party two months ago and eating there on the same day she is seeing him. Once again, this journey feels planned, not by us, and the outcome is out of our control. I hate that feeling. Our last stop on the tour is a look at an actual room in the hotel. Wow, those are some curtains. I would never have them in my home, I think to myself. How tacky. Jeanette replies, yes, those are Andy Warhol print poppy drapes. We had to get permission to use the design. Upon hearing the pride in her voice, I keep my opinion to myself. The white walls display no art, but the giant mirror and large screen TV make up for the bareness and the silver beanbag chair in the corner adds flair. I want to stay here, sissy, Adrian says as she walks around and examines the stereo. My first thought isn't, we can't afford it, but instead it's, you couldn't sleep on that platform bed. Jeanette shows us the unique mini bar, stocked with sake, energy drinks, licorice, animal crackers, 
Rice Krispie treats, Oreos, Vaseline, and even scented candles. Adrian smells a candle. Oh, patchouli, my favorite. You can have it, says Jeanette. Are you sure, I ask? Of course. Adrian thanks her and seems tickled by the souvenir. Before we leave, however, Jeanette gives us more gifts. A complete press kit full of photos, articles, and two t-shirts with the hotel's logo. We take pictures outside of the lobby with Jeanette, the waiter, and Wes, the guy who offered to let Adrian into the lounge, despite my protest about her age, any time she wants to show up. As we wait for the limo, I take a picture of Adrian talking to John. She has her right hand on her forehead, as if she's hitting herself or blocking the sun, and her left hand on her hip. She's smiling with teeth. Later, she decides that photo is her favorite picture of herself. I'm happy she sees what everyone else has known all along. She is beautiful, with or without hair. But it took being bald for her to see it. As the limo pulls into the rear parking lot of a nondescript building, I realize I've driven by this area of Hollywood more than a hundred times. I ask John if he knew this place was a rehearsal space and he shakes his head. We walk through a small foyer into the heart of the building, a soundproofed area complete with a stage. Except for a half dozen folding chairs, a white leather sofa is the only place to sit. Tonight, Dave is leaving for Boston to launch his solo tour for his new album, Trust No One and we are privileged enough to watch the final rehearsal. He and his band are going to perform the entire set for Adrian, her own private concert. We spot Dave immediately, but wait by the entrance while Becca talks to the professional photographer, provided by Make-A-Wish, who will take pictures of Dave and Adrian. When a shirtless Dave sees Adrian, he walks over and hugs her, apologizing for his non-existent perspiration. I imagine how giddy Adrian must feel receiving a kiss on the cheek from someone she has worshipped for years. I might have fainted if I had met Prince when I was her age, and if he had kissed me, maybe never washed my face again. However she's feeling, Adrian maintains her composure as Dave invites her to sit down and talk to him. Remember these? she asks. Adrian shows Dave the blue sequined wristbands on her forearms, the ones he gave her on The Tonight Show. He laughs and says, of course. Sitting on his knees in front of her, you would think Adrian was a queen with a royal subject kneeling before her, except for the large cup of Starbucks coffee next to Dave's knee. It ruins the fairy tale. Adrian presents Dave with a framed picture, a sketch she drew of his face. I know how nervous she is, how many times she started that drawing only to begin again, afraid he wouldn't like it. He looks at it and peers up at her. Thank you. The words feel heavy as if they're weighed down by sincerity. Judging from the earnest look on Dave's face, he means what he says. Not wanting to make too much of the moment, Adrian gives Dave another present, a unicorn snow globe she bought at Children's Hospital, an engagement gift for him and his fiancée, Carmen Electra. He makes a joke about being with Adrian and Carmen now, and she laughs. Although we meet Dave... For the most part, John and I watch the conversation between him and Adrian. We don't want to intrude, 
but we do remain close by in case Adrian doesn't feel well. Seeing Adrian talk to Dave like an old friend makes me think at least one good thing has come out of this experience, and it's more than a teenage girl meeting her favorite rock star. Though she knew his flaws, Adrian always put Dave on a pedestal. He could do no wrong. I believe it's good for her to see him for who he is, not only for what he does. I hear him asking about her health and what hospital she's transferring to, and he sounds concerned. Then Dave introduces her to his band. The bass player, another Dave, is also bald, and within minutes, he and Adrian are discussing the benefits of baldness, how little time they need to get ready to go somewhere, how good they look in hats, and how they spend no money on hair products. After many laughs, the band sets up for one final rehearsal. As their biggest fan in the audience, Adrian walks toward the leather couch with her disposable camera. Dave's manager appears out of nowhere. No pictures! I beg him, swearing there for us when Dave steps in. It's okay, he says. She can take pictures. The manager mutters something about signing a privacy, non-disclosure agreement, and I promise him we'll sign anything as long as Adrian can take pictures. He leaves to get the paperwork. When the show starts, I pay more attention to Adrian than the music. Although I do snap photos of the band playing with my 35mm camera, I have more fun taking pictures of Adrian as she clicks away. She never takes her eyes off the stage, even when she's not looking through the camera lens. I worry the pictures won't turn out well because it's dark in here. Someone turned down the house lights so the full effect of the stage lights could be seen. But I know Adrian won't care. If she can see even a shadow of Dave playing on stage, she will be happy. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. I wanted to add um, two notes on this particular podcast. Uh, the first one being that saying this out loud, my memoir, has been quite challenging because I'm one of those people that has a huge vocabulary, but I can spell a word better than I can say it. I am sure I have butchered the names of the medications, although I've done my best to look up the pronunciations of each one. I've never been good at pronouncing words. I've always been good at spelling and remembering them. So that's my first note. My second note is this day for Adrian was so incredible. And she had a bucket list. I didn't see it at the time, but she did. And I just think everyone should have a bucket list, cancer or no cancer. So I just, I want you to think about what your bucket list is. Anyway, thank you again, and please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode, which airs tomorrow. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. 
If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.